This is The Capital Corner, a McGuire Woods podcast exploring investment strategies, capital structures, and topics relevant in today's middle market private equity. Join McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share practical insights to inform your deal work. Hello, and thank you for joining another episode of The Corner Series. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, partner at McGuire Woods. Here in the Corner Series, we try to bring together some of the thought leaders and dealmakers of uh, private equity investing in healthcare. It's certainly an active space with a lot of interesting dynamics. I'm joined today by my, by my good friend, Dan Brinkenhoff at Center Partners. Uh, we've worked on several deals together. And today we're going to be talking a bit about one of the most active areas of healthcare investing. And that's in pharma services. It's a pretty expansive area. And we're going to talk through some segmenting of that market and maybe some headwinds and tailwinds that investors are seeing. But Dan, if we could start off, maybe give a quick intro of yourself and Center Partners, and then we'll jump into some questions. Yep. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, appreciate the invite here. Uh, as I think they say, long time listener, first time call. So appreciate being on here. Yeah. So my background... I am a managing director at Center Partners. We are a middle market, lower middle market private equity firm. We've been around since 1986. About half of our investments are in the healthcare sector. The other half are in consumer. I spend most of my time within healthcare, broadly speaking, but one of the subsectors I focus on is the pharma services sector. Just quickly about Center and, and how we look to invest, we're typically targeting being the first institutional capital in, so typically working with founders who are looking for a capital provider that could help them grow their business. And we can do that by tapping into our network of operating partners who, who have experience in these subsectors that we focus on and really can be uh, helpful in terms of being uh, board members or being more actively involved uh, with the companies. We do uh, majority control buyouts in the vast majority of our investments and are typically looking at companies with call it five to 20, 25 million of EBITDA. And that's really us at at a high level, but happy to delve in further. So pharma services is a very large sector. Maybe uh, a good place to start, Dan, would be thinking about the evolution of outsourcing in pharma services. Why has it come to pass that so many of the services surrounding creating and bringing a drug to market, for example, has been outsourced into this sector? Yeah, a great question. And I think there's a, a lot of different uh, impacts on, on the increasing move towards outsourcing within the pharma services sector. I think that the two biggest ones are just the science has changed. The real evolution in the technology, cell therapy, gene therapy, DNA analysis, and, and CRISPR technologies and being able to drive down the cost for much more targeted therapeutics has really opened the world for biotech and and biologics to have increased penetration in the market. But with that, it's also driven up the cost of bringing drugs to market and and the complexity of the science around that and the the importance to be to really be nimble and pivot quickly for the large pharma company has been an important change in the industry. And it's really, you don't have the days of the the large blockbuster type drugs anymore. There's a lot more targeted therapeutics out there that really still have great clinical value, but how those get to market really is uh, is a little bit different. Yeah, the complexity of 
the science around bringing a drug to market has also kind of driven folks towards specialized skill sets that are difficult for one company to have every imaginable skill set that's going to be necessary. And so that, that further kind of segments the market, but maybe turning a little bit towards market segmentation. When, as I talk to investors, I hear different ways of how they think about segmenting the pharma services market. I think your approach is a, is a pretty clean one. Can you maybe walk us through how you would segment the pharma services market? Yeah, I think it's probably the more traditional way to think about the market. And, and it's really looking at the life cycle of getting a drug to market. And that really starts at the very beginning with the uh, discovery phase and, and preclinical, and then going through uh, human clinical trials, phases two, three, and into four. And then getting through approval after that on the back end, you have the commercialization, you have uh, production, and then ultimately monitoring, marketing, and everything that goes after drug has been approved. And so within each one of those buckets, each one of those phases along the approval process, there are a number of service providers that could be helpful to the pharma companies in terms of how they, what they're outsourcing, what they're looking to bring in specialists for. And so really keen in on some of those subspecialties within each one of those phases is really how we think about segmenting the market. And look, there are some services that can span multiple, you know, multiple areas of that. So you, you could find consulting companies or data analytic companies that work both in the pre-approval stage, but also in the commercialization stage. But overall, I, I think it's the spectrum of bringing a drug to market is how we typically set it. The other way that I sometimes hear folks think about segmenting this market is through kind of functionality. Some businesses might fit under a category of kind of clinical operations like site management or CROs or e-clinicals or the manufacturing component of that. Is that a useful construct as well? Or do you overlay some of those distinctions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no one right or wrong approach. And that certainly makes sense as well. I mean, for example, CDMOs, you can have CDMOs that are, are focused on APIs that are pre-approval. So really in the in the phase two through four stage or post-approval and, and scaling up manufacturing of a drug. And some of those uh, skill sets can be applied on, on both sides. So it's not an either or approach. You can almost think about it as, as a matrix. And what are the the timeline of bringing a drug to market, but also the service offerings that are, are needed in each one of those phases. And, and there's definitely overlap there. The entire sector is definitely getting a lot of interest from investors. What do you think are some of the drivers of growth in that sector? Yeah, absolutely. First, uh, as I started out, just talking about the science, right? And the fact that there has been so much innovation in the industry over the past really 15 years. And the expectation that that is going to continue with the introduction of, of cell and gene therapy and, and the ability to really have targeted therapeutics for some of the most challenging diseases that have been out there. You know, Alzheimer comes to mind as one. And uh, Eli Lilly's announcement uh, a week or two ago with one of their drugs having some promising signs of, of treatment. But really bend on that will, is projected to continue to grow depending upon where you look anywhere from kind of mid to high single digits to even low double digits. So very nice growth outlook uh, driven by a lot of the, the therapeutics that are expected to be coming to market. Another driver, as I talk to folks, is that the sector is not exactly correlated to kind of the ebbs and flows of the broader economy. There's 
uh, a massive amount of capital that is pointing at developing new drugs and is going to continue to be pointed in that direction for the next 10 years at least. That seems to add some staying power to this regardless of uh, market conditions, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's clearly the truth. Uh, it's typically uh, an acyclical type of market that doesn't have the, the typical business cycles that you see. You know, I would caveat, and we're not going to the risks quite yet, but I do think in a higher interest rate environment and, and uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and, and their blow up being a large funder of some of the earlier stage biotechs, that would likely ripple through the industry somewhat. You know, some of the earlier stage companies that might not be able to get the financing in this environment might not make it to the next stage in the next three to five years. But overall, I think that's maybe a near-term blip, if anything. The longer-term tailwinds are, are certainly there and, um, and not driven by the general macroeconomic. As you look at investment theses, I think it's always important to think of who are the back-end buyers as, as these businesses get to scale. From your view, who are the back-end buyers of these businesses after they do get quite a bit larger, and what do they want? There's really kind of two ways that you could think about it. One, who's going to be the payer? And so that really could be government programs, CMS and Medicare, but also the, the commercial payer. And so clearly collecting data, real-world evidence, and being able to show clear value to those payers for what they're going to be getting in return for their investment in these therapeutics, some of which could be extremely expensive. But that's only one side of it. The other side is obviously marketing to the patients themselves, making sure the doctors and the, the KOLs are getting the message out around the efficacy of these therapeutics and, and why people should be asking their doctors about it. So you can't really have one without the other. You need to have the coverage and payer support there, but you also need to have the uptake from the patient side as well. In a market that is consolidating, what's your assessment of what the market looks like on that spectrum? Meaning, is this in early stages of consolidation? Is it a little bit more advanced? Is it kind of big on the one end and barbell distribution? Uh, what does the market look like for consolidation from your perspective? I'd say overall, still a very fragmented market, even in some of the, the spaces that are, uh, I would say, kind of some of the most consolidated in the outsourced pharma services market, really looking at the, the big CROs that are out there. You, you know, you have IQVIA, you have Icon, some of the big players there. I think the estimates that I've seen are top 10 CROs are roughly 60% of the market. So, you know, fairly consolidated, but that leaves 40% of the market. And depending upon where you look, the CRO market alone is, is 50 billion plus and growing. So where we're looking to play, you'd say, okay, CROs are are one of the more consolidated sub-segments within pharma, but it's still a very large market with some specialization and, and smaller companies that have created niches for themselves out there. Plenty of room for companies of our size range to play. So I do think it's, it's still very fragmented and opportunities for consolidation through add-on acquisitions has been a, kind of a tried and true strategy and playbook within private equity. The niche market is always fascinating to me. I, I hear about these companies and my immediate reaction is, goodness, I wouldn't even have thought of that. What are some of the niche areas in pharma services that you've seen? I think those are some interesting spaces. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, maybe I'll start with one that, that's kind of nearest and dearest to my heart, which is the clinical trial site management organizations. 
So these are really, think about it, patient recruitment offices and, and vehicles working with the CROs and pharma sponsors that are really doing what I, I call the last mile of work. You're recruiting the patients, you're getting them to come into the clinic, you are delivering the drug to them. Well, first, you're screening to make sure they meet either the inclusion uh, or exclusion criteria of whatever specific uh, drug is being tested. And once enrolled, you're making sure that they follow through uh, on the drug, essentially the, the whatever's been approved by the IRB. And getting through that process, collecting the data, that's been a highly fragmented market we've seen through some of our physician practice management uh, investments that it's kind of an ancillary service that a lot of times providers have looked at as a revenue opportunity outside of their delivery of care practice. But over time, some companies have sprung up that have been focused and dedicated solely on clinical trials and patient recruitment for the phase two and phase three phase. And then even more over time, there have been some of these larger multi-site management organizations that have cropped up. And that has become a bit of a hot area in private equity recently, probably about a dozen or so platforms in the space. But that market is still really dominated by the small players, the uh, clinicians that are providing this service on the side and ancillary to what they do day to day. So some of the estimates are that only 5% of the market for these site management organizations are done by these multi-site operators. We have an investment in one, IMA Clinical Research, which is up to about 17 sites currently, uh, really across the country. And, and so what we like about this subspecialty is the, the, the value proposition that it plays within the, the drug approval process. It allows us to be a partner for the pharma companies or the CRO sponsors, being able to have a single contract, e-clinical, so all e-source documentation, better QA on the data that we are collecting, and uh, quicker patient recruitment so that ultimately the pharma companies can bring drugs to market even more quickly. And really, time is money for these pharma companies. The quicker that they could bring a successful drug to market and start generating revenue from it, or uh, conversely, pulling the plug on the drug that looks like the data aren't there to support their FDA approval, that's all very valuable. So that's one of the, the kind of niche sub-segments that has gotten a lot of attention recently. But another area that we like is really just anything that's consulting-oriented. There have been some, you know, I think the, the knock on, on some of these segments is that sometimes they're project-based work. But there are some interesting consulting firms that really help the smaller-end biotech firms navigate the FDA approval process, their regulatory submissions, paperwork with the FDA market mapping, and some interesting specialty firms out there that, that we think are quite attractive as well. No sector is all tailwinds. And if it feels like it's all tailwinds, it immediately creates a, he a headwind in pricing. But from a headwind perspective, maybe beyond pricing or, or starting with pricing, what are some of the headwinds that this sector can experience? Yeah, well, you can't start with pricing. I mean, look, historically, just given the, the tailwinds in the sector, the, the opportunity for consolidation and just the, the above GDP, well above GDP growth rates in the sector, these businesses ha have commanded uh, premium valuations in the market, you know, teens multiple uh, oftentimes as a starting point. But even aside from that, and, and you know, I think there might be some compression just given interest rate environment, but it will still command higher valuations than I think the, the broader market, certainly the broader healthcare market. But specific to the, the sector itself, there's a number of, of, I think, headwinds that are impacting a lot of businesses in the sector. One is just 
competition for skilled labor. If you think about these businesses and these segments, really highly educated workforce out there, and there has been a lot of competition for labor out there. And so ability to pass on those cost increases and, and not have your margins get compressed is certainly top of mind for really any business nowadays, but uh, that flows through to this sector as well. One of the other potential headwinds that I mentioned is, and I think this applies more to the really the earlier stage biotech market where companies might be in cash burn mode uh, for some period of time. And the equity markets are more difficult to tap right now. And some of the private markets are more difficult to tap just given where interest rates have gone. I mentioned the SVB blow up and and, uh, just, I guess, general concerns around how that flows through. I think that's more near-term in nature, but uh, but there could be some companies that just don't make it out of the, the preclinical and discovery phase uh, because the funding really isn't there. And then, you know, I think one of the bigger questions, and, and it, it's been really top of mind recently, really since last year, is thinking about, well, I guess going to your question, who's the consumer? Who's who's the customer for these, for these companies? And ultimately, you need a payer that's going to be there. And a lot of that starts with CMS. And I think the industry got... I wouldn't say delta below, but definitely a lot of questions after Medicare denied coverage for Biogen's Alzheimer's drug in April of last year. And there's a lot of, don't need to, you could probably do a whole podcast on that alone, but really the high level is that there wasn't, I guess CMS didn't feel like there was enough efficacy or return on investment for what was a high price therapeutic. And so I think that really impacts the way the pharma companies are thinking about how they allocate their capital dollars. If the funding isn't going to be there for what could potentially be a blockbuster drug, or are they going to pull the plug on certain drugs earlier? You know, I think the flip side or the glass half full on that is maybe it means that they are, it creates opportunities for some of the companies we would look to invest in because there is more need for collection of real world evidence. There is lobbying and marketing that, that go into these decisions. And for drugs like this, they are maybe more likely to spend more upfront to make sure that they have a strong case when they, uh, you know, not when they go for FDA approval, but after the fact, when they're trying to make sure that there is coverage for these drugs as well. I feel like every discussion of a sector has to have at least one AI question and whether or not the sector is susceptible to disruption on the basis of kind of AI development. How would you answer that with respect to pharma services? Great question. Uh, TBD, like in, in a lot of sectors, but I do think there are certainly aspects to, of pharma services that can be disrupted here. There is a lot of data and analytics that go into, into this sector and, and being able to target the right therapeutics to the, the right genes and right cells. There could be, you know, that could make its way into clinical trials. I don't see clinical trials ever going fully virtual. You're always going to have to have uh, testing in first in animals and, the, and then in humans. But we do see in the preclinical discovery phase, there has been a shift towards simulating models so that you might not need to do the animal studies. So I, I do think there is opportunity there uh, for AI to potentially make, you know, make certain business models less relevant, other business models more relevant but we'll just have to see how that plays out over the next five plus years. I think we will call that uh, an end. Uh, This has been super enlightening. It's always great to talk with you, Dan. Uh, You have a ton of knowledge and tremendous insights. And uh, thanks again for joining. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. 
thank you for joining us on this installment of The Capital Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.